0: Hey, what's going on, good people? This is Gardner Douglas, and I'm your Ocean Ninja. Uh, today, we got a great show lined up, just like every week, of course. Uh, but I'm really, you know, it's crazy. Every week I say this, but this is a great show. <laughs> this is another great show lined up. Um, it's it's just crazy. Uh, I guess it's just part of podcasting, but... I feel like every show is my best show. every show gets better every you know every show improves on something so um I really hope you guys are enjoying it again as always I'm always asking for your feedback so let me know what you think about this episode. let me know what you're thinking about you know the podcast in general whatever uh, of course you can hit me up uh, by email as oyster ninja pc at gmail.com and of course you can hit us up on our Facebook page uh, Oyster Ninja Podcast and on Instagram Oyster Ninja PC okay cool so like I said great show Uh, this week we're talking to Mr. Jorge Bogantes Um, he works with Anacostia Watershed Society and let me tell you, you talking about amazed. I was first of all thrown so much knowledge um surprised it's just crazy what's really you know right under your nose um of course, this is uh this podcast focus on or this episode focuses on uh the Anacostia watershed. Uh, river, um, of course, that involves Prince George's County, uh, Montgomery County, D.C., of course, um, you know, all all of that. And uh, it's just so much going on, and it's great to see, you know, people coming together trying to make it great again. You know how crazy that sounds, but you're trying to make the, the watershed great again. They're trying to make it so you can go fishing and keep your fish and eat your fish without second-guessing it. You know, they're trying to make it where you can go uh, go swimming, you know, without... Oh, he goes into it a little bit during uh, episode So, you know, like I said, it's a great show. So much knowledge. Um, the episode was based on, you know, me just being trying to you know i try and center myself around things i want to educate myself on and uh, i i've been following them on facebook and instagram for a while and a couple posts just you know struck me by surprise when they were talking about muscles freshwater mussels muscles in the anacostia river uh so i contacted them they were nice enough to hit me back so one thing led to another I'm there talking with them, but yeah, freshwater mussels in the Anacostia river that are, you know, being restored, you know, uh, just like anything else. It takes time, but it's looking real good. And they just, you know, started or not just started, but they just, uh, I don't even want to give too much stuff away. You know, that's how much information is packed in this podcast. Um, I'm going to let Jorge take over, and thank you guys for listening, and I'll uh, be with you in a few minutes. Hey, what's going on, good people? This is Gardner Douglas, and today we're sitting with Anacostia Watershed, and I have Mr. Jorge... Vagantis. And And uh, I'm going to let him come in and introduce himself, and got some good stuff to tell you.
1: Thank you. Uh, thanks for having us. Uh, my name is Jorge Bogantes. I'm the Natural Research Specialist uh, here at the Anacostia Watershed Society. We're here in Bladensburg, Maryland, but we work throughout the Anacostia watershed. It we, we includes uh, eastern half of DC, parts of uh, Prince George's County, and Montgomery County. Uh, this is a special year because this is the year of the Anacostia. It was designated as such by DC government and PG County and uh, is celebrating the, the centennial of Anacostia Park and um, uh, Frederick Douglass because he, he lived in, in Southeast D.C. And, and many other historic and environmental features. Well, one of the main environmental uh, feature, river restoration uh, event, is that they recently launched the tunnel, the Anacostia River Tunnel for the Clean Rivers Project. Uh, which is cutting sewage by 80%, which is a major thing, and this is the result of uh, AWS work. When you know we filed a lawsuit um, uh, years ago to DC Water or WASA, that was the name before—and that kind of spearheaded the process of of, of um, redoing the combined sewer overflow into a more modern system to, that uh, you know to minim- minimize or avoid. Uh, pollution into the Anacostia River, sewage pollution, because that was, you know, an infraction of the Clean Water Act, and uh, so, like, this Monday, we had some, Monday, Friday morning, we had two inches of rain, and, and it, it actually it collected, like, 170 million gallons of sewage, uh, wow. only, like, 20 million gallons were, well, that's a lot still, but, but uh, it's it, Significantly cut the amount of sewage as it was designed. So again, because of these um, milestones, this was declared the year of the Anacostia River. There's a hashtag in every Yoda 2018 so, right. for social media. So we're very excited about that, and and really, yeah, this is a turning point. There's a lot of good things happening, positive things for the river, and we're working towards making the river fishable and swimmable by 2025. So this, this was the first phase of the tunnel. The second phase will will finish in in like five years or so. That's gonna cut sewage by 98%. So that's significant.
0: What is the tunnel? And before the tunnel was actually there, what was happening to the sewage?
1: So the, the, the DC used to have an old fashioned, like a hundred year old, uh, combined sewer overflow system. So when it rained more than half-inch, the storm water mixed with the sewage and then drained into the Anacostia, the Potomac, and the Rock Creek. But the Anacostia got the biggest share and the biggest share of pollution. Uh, so that's why AWS took that action in the 90s to, to file a lawsuit against D.C. Water because, again, it was an infraction of the Clean Water Act, and you know, that's a lot of sewage and uh, we, we need like no fecal pollution in order to make the river swimmable and you know that was a big problem and you know still a big problem but greatly diminished after this first phase of the Clean Rivers project.
0: Nice. The tunnel, what is it? Like it's just...
1: Yeah so it's kind of like a storage, it's like a was like a 26 feet in diameter tunnel a huge tunnel and you know it's pretty long I, I don't know the specifics of mm-hmm. the engineering but but yeah it, it pretty much uh, stores the sewage and then it is pumped into the Blue Plains water treatment plant um, and again before these all used to just dump into the river
0: right so, yeah mm-hmm. okay. well, that's good stuff and you said um, it's doing what 20% now
1: yeah yeah, no, 80 is cutting 80. sewage by 80%. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's a, that's a huge, this is really a game changer for the river because we're, we're going to, after this year, and from now on, we're really going to start seeing huge improvements in the river, like in, in submerged aquatic plants, mussels, fish, and a lot of the, the, the you know, the biodiversity, the aquatic biodiversity is just going to improve from here
0: on yeah that's great news yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that's great news yeah. um so what are uh what are we expecting to see as far as like wildlife come are they going to come back are they already there or is it going to be more wildlife coming back into uh the anacostia
1: well i i expect the so the biggest changes will be like in the underwater grasses or or that we call submerged aquatic vegetation, SAV. So the SAV beds are going to increase a lot because the problem before was the 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 murkiness. The river is too murky so these plants grow completely underwater so the water is murky they cannot photosynthesize so they cannot grow. So now with clearer water they can grow pretty well. And, and, and these plants, these submerged aquatic vegetation, are critical because they filter sediment, pollutants. Uh, they are nurseries for fish, crayfish, and aquatic invertebrates, and mussels, so, so there's a lot of life as a result of these uh, SAV beds. So the better clarity, you know, the more SAV we're going to have in the waters. And we're already seeing, you know, uh, AWS has monitored the the water clarity for over a decade in the river. And in the last three years, we've seen better water clarity. In the last three summers, particularly, we've seen even before the Clean Rivers Project. So that has been a pattern because, you know, all the advocacy and all the cleaning efforts going on. Throughout the watershed, so we're, we were already seeing some improvements. But with the Clean Rivers Project, it's just gonna, it's just gonna be great from here on. And and again, more SAV is gonna be is gonna mean more fish, more crayfish, more fish, more mussels, more everything, pretty much, more birds. <laughs> right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Right. So
0: they have food to eat. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. everything else, it's it's just crazy. I that's one thing that really amazes me about mother nature is just the full circle of everything yeah you know mm-hmm. one thing affects another right and you yeah. know if you take one of those things out you know things change and sometimes you know it's not always for the best you know mm-hmm. a lot of times yeah and
1: this submerged aquatic vegetation it can be very fragile there's like numbers from DOE the district department of energy and environment they monitor the acreage of SAV so you can see like uh, how it was uh, pretty bad in years where we had like hurricanes like it was in the 90s I wasn't living here so I, I forget the names but you know when, when there was a big hurricane you know that means murky water and a lot of disturbance then the SAB population went down and then in other years that were more normal the SAB was going up so in the last few years it's been going up and up and up because of the water clarity improvements
0: right yeah. So what kind of what kind of fish are um, uh, called Anacostia home?
1: There's like seventy species of fish in the river, mm-hmm. uh, but some of the remarkable ones are the the migratory fish like the like the rockfish. Uh, we have been seeing rockfish, uh, especially here, like Bladesburg where water from park. Uh, in the last few years, we've seen more anglers catching uh, rockfish. Mm -hmm. Some are small, so they need to throw them back in the water because of the regulations, but that's a good sign that we can see more rockfish uh, that, you know, they migrate from the bay. Right. Oh, and by the way, this is the fish, the World Fish Migration Day is happening Saturday. Uh Uh-oh. It's, again, it's a worldwide celebration of migratory fish because of all the benefits, you know, economic and ecological and all that so, um, so that's a good one happening and at the same time it's our earth day cleanup day so that's our biggest volunteer event so anyway back to fish <laughs> so uh yeah we have rockfish we have shad the shad are running at this time of the year american shad and elwife. wife uh, we have uh, white perch which is another migratory fish from the chesapeake bay um, And then there's others that have been introduced, uh, some bad actors, other not so bad, Mm -hmm. like uh, blue cats, according to the the Maryland uh, DNR Department of Natural Resources Research. Apparently, they they can be bad because they eat a lot of other things, including mussels and other fish and other things, and they were introduced from the Mississippi Basin and, you know, they can grow pretty big. Oh yeah, the I think they big. Like <laughs> 80 pounds or so, I think is the record for Maryland. Uh, so they can, so we have channel cats, blue catfish, and flathead now, catfish. They, they are all introduced from other parts of the. They are Native American species, but not native to the Anacostia. Right. Water. So they are causing impacts. Actually, this, the northern snakehead, which has been so famous, uh, it was introduced in 2005, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, in Crofton, Maryland, at a pond. And according to the Virginia Tech research, the, they are not as bad as, as we thought. Okay. Uh, their populations are plateauing, or in some cases even going down as a result of harvesting. Right. Because they've become a, a popular game fish. You know, we see people here, boats with platforms, they are boat fishing. Right. So there's a lot of fishing pressure on the zinchead. So that has helped perhaps keep the species at bay. So, and then others like carp, which you know we see some giant carp like 20 pounds, those were introduced I think like in the 1800s or so, or a long time ago. They do have their impacts, um, they mess up with the sediment and all that. So, so again, there's a lot of things that have been introduced and species that are native like the first ones I mentioned, and broadfish. Actually, the only only native uh, catfish is the brown bullhead, the small catfish. Okay. That one is native to the river, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm.
0: Is there any particular reason why the other catfish were introduced? Was it to? Mostly for fishing, yeah. People
1: wanted to have them around here because they were from other parts of the country. Okay. And for fishing purposes.
0: That's it. That's all. Wow. Yeah. Yeah how we do we just come in and yeah want to do stuff right away yeah (laughs) so let's talk about these muscles the reason why uh you know i had to get up with anacostia watershed because i saw these muscles on facebook and i was like i didn't even know you know that we grew muscles here locally right so let's talk about that yeah where do we start
1: years ago when i've I've been here at aws for nine years when i first started here some former co-workers and, and just you know, people that support us, they ask they ask me about mussels, and I was ah, there's some no mussels in the river. <laughs> I, I I, but I started seeing mussels. You know, I do a lot of wetland work, wetland planting, so I'm in the river, so I started seeing shells and even live mussels. Like one time with a colleague, we were fishing for a fish tissue analysis study from the University of Maryland, and and um, and so the uh, friend uh, snapped, he was reeling in the line and he snapped uh, a mussel in the, in the fishing line and it was, uh, I sent some records to the Maryland Biodiversity Project and they identified it as Eastern Floater which now we know is one of the most common species up and down the river. Um, so anyway, we started seeing more and more mussels, and I said, well, maybe there's something here. There's a restoration opportunity. And, uh, and that's exactly what we started learning more about mussels. We partnered with the Maryland DNR to do a survey of the species that we have in the river. And again, we found eight species, wow. on our surprise. And actually, six of those species are considered, um, you know, rare, rare threatened. Uh, in Maryland and DC, uh, they are either listed as a species of greatest conservation need or, you know, like in peril, depending on the, the conservation listing that you look at. But, but yeah, so we found eight species of these creatures that they clean the water. I mean, an adult mussel uh, filters between 10 and 20 gallons of water per day. Uh, I mean, it's not as as much as the oysters, the oysters can filter like what 50 gallons or so. Right. But it's it's pretty decent. And In yes. places like at Bossard Point, the confluence with the Potomac River, mm-hmm. that's where we have what they call mussel beds. There's like hundreds of mussels in a small area, mm-hmm. and because of the SIV, uh, actually, there's a there's there's a submerged aquatic vegetation bed, so it's perfect habitat for mussels. Mussels are thriving there, so. If you add up the capacity, the filtering capacity of all these muscles, it can be pretty impressive. Uh, we don't have, like, the actual numbers, but, I mean, it's in the order of millions of gallons of data that they're filtered. Wow.
0: So, uh-huh. so, yeah. So you yeah. said that that's at buzzer point? Buzzer point, yeah. Is that, like, a public place or?
1: Yeah, you can go. I mean, it's right now, are you familiar with James Creek Marina? uh so well there actually there used to be a buzzard point marina but they removed it and now there's james creek marina those are owned by the national park service Mm -hmm. uh and uh they're actually building a lot uh they are building a the soccer stadium and then they are building some like residential uh developments there and uh but yeah you can go to that area um uh, it's funny because when you go there, it looks like a very just crappy urban, like uh, like industrial place that is changing. Uh, but when you look in the water, that's where the diversity is. Mm-hmm. Like uh, outside of the water, it's just like a small forest buffer or some just not not so interesting trees or forest or barely a forest and. But the diversity is actually in the water. Once you look in the water, that's where the greatness is. <laughs> <That's what> I <laughs> <Yeah>. like that. <laughs> yeah.
0: So you said uh, mussels filter 10 to 20 gallons. What other What other benefits do they have to Mother Nature, or what else do they do?
1: Oh yeah, they, they are great because because they are uh, filter feeders. Uh, they also uh, allow the sediment to settle in particular areas and. They are also food for other animals, like rats, right. uh, catfish, and other fish, raccoons, and, 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 and other animals. Uh, and even when when they die, the shells uh, work as as microhabitat for like snails, for fish. We found fish and crayfish in, in dead mussel shells that are kind of shut, uh, especially during the colder times. We found crayfish inside. Love snails and, and some fish like mommy chug. They like to use them as nesting spots. So, so even after they die, they are useful for the ecosystem. So, um, uh, so again, cleaning the water, helping kind of settle sediment, uh, uh, being the food for other animals, and being uh, serving as the, as habitat for other animals. So yeah.
0: So what's the perfect um, habitat for a mussel to thrive?
1: Yeah, well, I think Buzzard Point has a great condition because it's mostly kind of like, so it's mostly gravel and sandy bottom. There's some muddy spots that is not overly mucking. It's just the mud that the submerged aquatic plants filter. Uh, so, I mean, you know, it's so just a few inches thick. Uh, and, uh, and there's also submerged aquatic vegetation that helps uh, um, but they they are really anywhere. We have found in in the upper part of the river in mucky areas. They also like uh, muddy mucky areas. Yeah, if they are like maybe if they are overly mucky and and low oxygen or even with pollutants, of course they wouldn't like wouldn't like that. Mm-hmm. But so they like muddy. They like, but I think gravel sandy mixed with a little bit of mud is kind of like a, the the optimum. Yeah.
0: Right. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. So do they do they, so like oysters you know how they cluster together or are, are mussels the same way or are they just kind of do their own thing like individually
1: Yeah these ones are interesting because unlike the marine mussels or like the you must have heard about the invasive zebra mussels which not from wood, we don't have them in the river yet but right. they are in the bay like the Susquehanna river but so these kind of mussels and also the marine mussels, like the ones you get at the restaurant, they develop some fibers, protein fibers, that are called bisol threads, so these this, this fibers help them attach to either other mussels or surfaces, rocks or any other surface. Now these mussels, the freshwater mussels, some have the capacity to do that, but they mostly, they are not attached like that, we always find them, um, they, they just bury in the bottom, or they're just on top of the bottom, mm-hmm. uh, and they grow individually. They don't grow like clustered, right. like the oyster, or right. those other mussels. Uh, there there might be a lot of mussels in a single area, like the mussel bed I was talking about, but they are not attached to each other. They grow individually.
0: Right. hmm Yeah. So, um... Do they, do they spawn also? I know you was telling me a little bit when, right, we, yeah. when we did the little tour. So uh, what is their process?
1: Yeah, the life cycle is fascinating because uh, they are actually parasitic. There's a stage where they are parasitic. So first, uh, so the, the males so during the breeding season, the male release the sperm in the water column and the female has to filter the sperm, fertilize the eggs, so she keeps the eggs in the gills. Uh, it's funny because this kind of would be like the lungs uh, having the same uh, double purpose as lung and uterus, if you put it in human terms. Right. So, so they develop the eggs in, in the gills, in their lungs, quote-unquote, and then the larvae hatch, and they grow inside the gills for some time, and then when they are ready, they will release those larvae, which uh, technically they're called glochidia. They release them into fish so they attach to the fish body they might be there for two weeks or a month and they grow kind of mm-hmm. like I used to normally say like ticks or lice they're mm-hmm. parasitic they kind of feed off from the fish bodily fluids and and then when they are done they just drop off from the fish body drop on the bottom and start growing as tiny muscle like the, the size of a dot on a book and um, the first stage, they, they use their foot, you know, they have like this, it looks like a tongue, they mm-hmm. use their foot to kind of grab the food particles and eat them. That's like a short first stage after the parasitic stage. And then after that, they just start filtering, as, you know, as we know them, uh, as filter feeders, filter feeding muscles. So, and from then on, they just start growing the shell bigger and bigger. I mean, we have found, we we find some like elk white floaters that are, you know, pretty big that would be like, you know, six, uh, seven inches in length or so. So yeah, that's pretty much the life cycle. And uh, the species might have specific host fish that they like. Uh, For example, the Eastern Olympia uses the American eel mostly, interestingly. Uh, the L.Y. floater uses fish from the uh, shad family, shad, herring, L.Y. Uh, the eastern floater is very generalist. Uh, they might use carp, they might use largemouth bass, bluegills, mummy chub, and whatever is around. That's why they are everywhere, because they are, very, they are generalists. Uh, I mean, there's even cases from other parts of the country where they are just specific to one species, like, You know in the mountains of Tennessee and all that it might be just uh, like or right here in the mountains here uh like brook trout only or a garter or some some just one species so they are very uh, vulnerable you know if there's a fish blockage or something happens
0: to the fish right then the muscle is pretty imperiled
1: so yeah
0: how long do they live? Like, what's the lifespan of a of a mussel? Yeah,
1: it could be a few years to a hundred years. Wow. Yeah, so they, they are long-lived. Do they
0: keep yeah. growing the whole time?
1: Yeah, they just keep growing the, the shell. Okay. Yeah. hmm Yeah, they they don't shed. Cause some people ask me this, like you know, like crustacean, like crayfish or lobster, that they shed. Right. You know, they they just keep growing the same shell. Right. And actually, and there's um, the experts have a technique of. of Estimating the age of individuals by looking at the growth rings, kind of in a tree, mm-hmm. but you have you need a microscope and it's complicated. Right, right, <laughs> yeah, but it's but it's interesting. Yeah, you can estimate the age by looking at their growth.
0: So um, I was on, again I'm on you, you know your Facebook page, and I was looking, and uh, so you collected some mussels from the river, mm-hmm. and they spawn. Mm-hmm. So what's going to happen to those baby mussels?
1: Okay, so yeah, we just started that process. So in March, to late March, we collected our first, uh, what we call the brood stock. These are four females that were grabbing or, you know, quote-unquote pregnant.
0: Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Uh, one more question before we get into that. Yeah. Uh, are, are mussels like oysters, like they only spawn on during certain parts of the year or do they spawn all year round?
1: Yeah, they, it depends on the species, but some might be only in the fall, or others in the spring, or others might be, like, on the summer, uh, so yeah, I guess it depends on, on what species. Okay, the ones we're working with are mostly, like, in the spring, so, yeah. So, what we did was, we collected four gravid females, or, you know, pregnant females with larvae, the way you, you know they're pregnant, you have to, like, Carefully using like a nasal speculum or something like inverse plier to open them uh, a little bit, peek inside into the gills. When they are gravid, uh, you can see the gills are engorged. They're kind of like rigged and swollen. That's when it, the, you know the larvae are in there, and um, and so. So we collected four females, took them to the national, the Harrison Lake National Fish Hatchery in Virginia. That's in Charles City, Virginia, near Richmond, and they are the experts in Muslim culture. And so what they do, or actually, I I brought the females this week. They did their job, and but by, by that I mean that they they kind of secluded them with the largemouth bass, the host fish, kept them there for a few days until they release the larvae into the bass and then they attach to the bass. In this case, I think they're mostly attached to the gills of the bass. And then the, the bass are going to have, are going to be in a tank for a couple of weeks until the larvae drop to the tank bottom and they have a system to collect them and then they're going to know, uh, yeah, we're going to know how many we're going to get and then they keep feeding them with this uh, um, algae cocktail, and, and they just keep growing and growing. Right. You know, like a, a millimeter a month or more, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, those were the first four. So, I actually released them yesterday. I brought them from the hatchery, and I released them at the same spot where I found them, in at Point. and then I actually dropped off. We found an L-Y floater rabbit female of the white floater, so in the hatchery they have the herring ready. So they're gonna put her with the herring and do the infection, and then we'll see how many mussels we get from that female. That's so great. yeah, it's a it's a it's an interesting process, and um, and yeah, if you get a chance uh, to go to the Harrison Lake National Fish Hatchery, it's nice in Charles City, Virginia. They they also have some ponds and some trails there on the property so yeah
0: that's pretty cool so once the um the baby mussels get to a certain size mm-hmm. then what will they be released into, like the buzzard or wherever they go
1: yeah so we're gonna do like an experiment where we're gonna keep them in uh what they call fish spawning baskets these are like kind of like a laundry basket uh with um of makeshift that we use like swimming pool noodles to keep uh, and tie them with zip ties along the edge to make them floatable right and then you know it has like a screen on the bottom and a little bit of sand so they can bury uh and then we're going to keep like 300 mussels per basket at Kenilworth aquatic gardens at the ponds and then a heritage marsh and then down by the Yards Park in D.C. There's like a dock where they do kayaking. Mm-hmm. So we're going to keep four there, four in heritage and like 16 baskets of the Kenilworth Aquatic Gardens. So we're going to monitor growth, see how they grow and the survival. And then we're going to keep them in those baskets for about a year. And after that year, we're going to release them into the river. We don't know where yet, mm-hmm. because also the river, I don't know if you're aware, but they are doing like the, the sediment study. you know, the, they are looking at the legacy toxic sites. The river has like five or six legacy toxic sites that are, have a lot of, you know, nasty pollutants from the past, so they, they were doing a comprehensive study to kind of pinpoint where those are and what kind of pollutants, and now the next step will be to fix that problem. Which could be like capping or dredging or a mix, we don't know yet, but and we don't know where, it depends on it. So,
0: so dredging could help that process? Yeah, like scoop the,
1: the, the polluted sediment. Oh, yeah. okay. So yeah, now that's under discussion now by DC government and many partners in the region, including ourselves. Um,
0: and who's doing that study, the sediment study?
1: Well, I was DOE, the District Department of Energy and Environment. They mm-hmm. they paid uh, Tetra Tech, which is a big consulting firm, and they did all that analysis. Yeah, it took them like a year or so. Um, so so yeah, that's actually kind of the next big step in cleaning the river after the you know the tunnels. Mm-hmm. This is gonna be critical because you know we're not gonna. The river is not going to be fishable and swimmable until we clean the legacy toxics, and uh, and also that's kind of determined, Hopefully, in that by the time we're going to be ready to release the mussels, which is going to be like in late or like in late summer of of 2019 or even the next year, uh, we should probably have a better idea where they're doing whatever they're going to do, dredging, capping, or a mix of the two.
0: What is capping?
1: Capping is just putting, like, sand and covering the polluted sediment.
0: Okay, so putting a cap on it. Yeah, put a cap on (laughs) it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, they
1: all have the risks, so that's why it's a careful... And yeah. Also, political, regardless of the say process.
0: Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, because you never hear anybody yeah. saying, "Yeah, let's go dredge." Yeah. So that's why I was like, "When well, they're gonna dredge it? Okay. Yeah. All right." Yeah. It might
1: again. It might be a mix. We don't know yet. Right.
0: <clears throat> okay. Cool. So, are we gonna see any uh, oysters in the Anacostia? No. Uh,
1: because the this is a fresh water system, of course. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah.
0: All right. So um. Uh, You you spoke a little bit about the biggest volunteer event. What's going on with that?
1: Oh, yeah. So this Saturday is our Earth Day cleanup, uh, April 21st in the morning, 9 to noon. Uh, So we do this every year to celebrate Earth Day and to, uh, you know, bring together partners. It's not... It's not only us, we really work with people from like the friends of group, friends of Sligo Creek, neighbors of Northwest Branch, many other people in the watershed and, you know, sponsors and uh, groups of volunteers, uh, so we this year we're going to have like 40 sites or so. Normally we have over 2,000 people every year nice. cleaning up trash, and um, so yeah, that's a part of our campaign to educate the public and, 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 and engage the public mm-hmm. in the cleaning and restoration of the river.
0: Great. Yeah. Um, I guess one of the biggest questions I should have asked in the beginning, what's the difference between the the uh, mussels that we eat in restaurants and mm-hmm. the mussels that we have in the Anacostia River? Yes,
1: yeah, so the
0: mussels we eat in restaurant are mostly from, from uh, the
1: salt water. They often come from the Uh, the Prince Edward Island in Canada, Eastern Canada, I think, and so that's the main producer in North America. So chances are when you buy a grocery store or get a local restaurant is from from Canada, Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, those are saltwater mussels. What we have here are freshwater mussels from a a family or lineage that is only in the fresh waters. So our muscles are going to look more kind of like uh, elliptical uh, in shape. Right. Uh, the other, the marine muscles are going to look slightly more kind of triangular, if you will. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, and anything else you want to put out there?
1: Yeah, like, uh, keep an eye on our social media at anacostiaws on facebook twitter and instagram and also on our website which we have a new website uh, for more on the muscle project oh another one that is great and i didn't mention and is that so we have that restoration part that i talked about but then at the same time we're going to have a very exciting educational component which is the muscles in the classroom okay we're going to work with five schools to start with um and we're gonna give let's say like a school is gonna a classroom is gonna get a 10 gallon tank with five mussels, and they're gonna keep those muscles for two weeks or one month in the classroom they're gonna feed them with the algae and they're gonna learn about muscle biology and all that and then at the end of that they will come to our floating baskets and then eventually into the river right so this will be a great education component for the kids Um, that we're hoping to expand uh, in the future. This is just kind of the pilot. Uh, We have other similar projects for other, you know, like the SHAD program or Rice Rangers where they keep propagate wetland plants. So this will be the first one with mussels. So we're excited about that. And we actually um, modeled this program after one in Ohio. We learned about that online. We reach out to them in Ohio and they also work with the Kentucky Department of Natural Resources, and uh, they are using another species, but we're pretty much replicating what they do here with the local species. Mm-hmm. So it'll be actually a first one in the region. We haven't heard of any other similar efforts. So, so yeah, right. we're, we're, that's part of why why we're so excited about this muscle effort. And no so, doubt. So it's, kind of, it's pretty much a new for us, a new for the Anacostia, and, yeah, so it's a, it's a good thing. Yeah.
0: So have you guys already reached out to the schools that you're, you're going to uh, be working with? or? Yeah,
1: to, our educators are, yeah, I think they have five schools uh, that are interested. Uh,
0: yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, what, I know we came here for muscles, but now I'm like, yeah, I got that itch. What other restoration programs are y'all doing?
1: Oh, yeah, we do, uh, so wetland restoration in the wetland we propagate uh, native plants like wild rice which used to be abundant uh, I don't know if you've been to uh, Jog Bay in the Patuxent River so that's what the Anacostia used to look like in the 1700s there was this long expanses of wild rice because of so much you know destruction in the wetlands wild rice was very diminished so what AWS has been doing is Propagating wild rice, we actually collect the seed from the Patuxent River at Jug Bay, and every year we seed it um, uh, either in pots or mud bowls or with the kids. We have Rice Rangers program. The kids grow the plants in the classroom, mm-hmm. and then in now at this time of the year they go to the marsh and plant them. Yeah. Uh, so How that, many
0: years have you been doing that? Uh, that's a good six
1: years or so. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's the wetland work. We also do a lot of tree planting uh, in degraded stream banks or in the river, uh, but also in LID, and I'll mention a little bit more about that. Uh, and also invasive plant control and, and native plant revegetation in other areas, like meadow restoration right across the street here. We have a new six acre meadow it used to be a FEMA floodway and we cannot grow trees because mm-hmm. of the, that's the Army Corps of Engineers uh, policy so instead we persuaded them to create a meadow uh, and they liked it and now we're growing a native meadow so it's, it's, uh, it's a better version of what the habitat they have is they manage they mow and spray so we have now a nice meadow with grasses and wildflowers along the river here on the FEMA floodway so, so again, so tree plantings, a lot of native plant revegetation. Uh, we also do uh, the low impact development work, like with programs like River Smart Communities in DC or Treating and Teaching, where we create uh, like rain gardens or install cisterns to, to manage stormwater, uh, bioretention cells, or trees but more like in schools or churches and public places to manage uh, storm water. Yeah, so that's, that's uh, uh, another component. And again, the trash cleanups, uh, we also do a lot of outdoor recreation. We have paddle nights every week in the summer, free for the public. Uh, we offer boat tours. And nature walks and things like that. So yeah, we try to engage as much people uh, to explore the river because it's changing a lot. I mean, it's not like when AWS started in 1989, but there's still a stigma. Some people think, oh, the Anacostia. I mean, so we're trying to eliminate that and bring people to the river, and and uh, it's been working. Uh, More people are interested because there's more. You know, there's we have the Anacostia River Walk Trail. That goes to all the way to anacostia park and uh, so so there, there's a lot of you know green spaces and, and outdoor opportunities to explore the river so that's what we're trying to do engage people demonstrate what works for the river in terms of restoration and and yeah and just engage them in, in the cause of cleaning and restoring the river making it fishable and swimable by 2025 that's our goal yeah, it, it used to sound crazy, but not so much anymore. Right. The, the, the tunnels and all that, is, 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 we're getting there. Yeah. So, no yeah. I,
0: think, I think that's great, man. Thank all you right.
1: so much for, for coming here and, uh, and hearing our story.